The scripture reading for this morning is Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please bear with me. Father, we come to your word this morning, and uh, we're challenged by it already, probably. Uh, This is not uh, a message that is one that is commonly heard in our circles and in our city. And God, we need your help right now to apply your truth to our hearts. Uh, We need your help to, uh, well, I need your help to help me speak words that are true, words that are from uh, your Bible and reflect uh, the words that you've given to Paul to speak to us. And we need your help here in the congregation to have your spirit apply these words in ways that make a difference, in ways that glorify Jesus Christ and him alone and change us to be more like him and help us to see him and his beauty. Uh, Lord, that's what we ask, that you would glorify your son, that we'd see him as beautiful even through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do you think? Is Jesus, and this, his message of salvation through his death and resurrection, something that is unique? Or is it just one path among many? Is the gospel of Jesus, you know, do you remember those Choose Your Own Adventure books? Is, is the gospel of Jesus just one path along the way of the choose-your-own-adventure story of salvation? Or is it something more? I think these are questions that we face all the time, though, in Vancouver. Because probably that, that's exacerbated because there's this reality where in Vancouver, the, the ethos is that we're to be an inclusive city. right? And we, we kind of put ourselves forward as being this very inclusive city, and who wants to be the exclusive person on the block? It's a challenge, isn't it? I don't know if you realize this about me, and I suspect that it's true about you too, but I, I really want to be liked by people, right? And when I'm out there and, and I'm trying to navigate between uh, maintaining a like and a friendship with the person I'm talking to, and a faithfulness to the word of God and texts like this one that I just see, just read or we just read it, uh, in the book of Galatians, there's a tension there, isn't there? And if you're like me, maybe you've mumbled before. Maybe you've not said the things that you ought to say because it's difficult. Because this isn't a popular message. I mean, I've done that before. But here's the thing. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, Paul speaks in no uncertain terms that mumbling about the gospel, that changing it in any way, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and it it hurts the people that you would otherwise be serving. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, and it's like, in in the world of our culture, it's like a rock between the eyes. It just like confronts us straight up, you know, and we fall dead, 
And that wasn't what I was expecting to read this morning in the Bible. And it confronts us because it says clearly and authoritatively and unapologetically that there is only one gospel message. And the implication of the truth that there is only one gospel is that witnessing faithfully, even when it is difficult, is what we must do if we're to stay faithful to this one gospel, if we're to love others in our neighborhoods well, and if we're to love our God who gave it to us well. So after Paul's intro in verses 1 to 5, which Fred, 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 uh, which Fred preached for us last week, verses 1 to 5, Paul, he kind of bursts into the scene here in verses 6 to 10 with a problem that he has with the Galatians in verses 6 to 10. Because they're turning their backs on the gospel that he's preached to them. They're turning their backs. And in these five verses, Paul articulates three things. He, he says, number one, he articulates his astonishment that they've abandoned the gospel message. And you see that in verses 6 to 7. Then he reveals this and throws out this anathema on those. I know it's a funny word, anathema, but we'll explain it when we get there. But he, he throws an anathema out at the guys who preach a different gospel uh, than the one that he preached in verses 8 to 9. And then uh, he articulates the third point will be the only approval that he seeks in verse 10. So to summarize that, it's a lot. Uh, we have three points. Astonishment in verses 6 to 7. Anathema in verses 8 to 9. And then approval in verse 10. And this sermon is going to be a little different this morning than maybe some of the sermons we've had in the past because we're going to tackle this text not just once. We're going to tackle it this week and we're going to tackle it next week as well. So this week what we'll do is we're going to spend a bit more time just unpacking the nuts and bolts of what it says. And then next week we're going to spend more of our time on application and understanding how that text that we just talked about uh, meets us in the world in Vancouver in 2018. So with all that said, let's jump in. Look with me at our first point, astonishment in verses 6 to 7. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I like what Fred said last week. He said that Paul's coming at this letter with this, this tone of compassionate rage. And I'm trying to bring that across as I read it, because this is, you've got to imagine Paul reading it. He's not calmly sitting back on the sofa with his legs up. You know, he's, he, there's an intensity behind this. And it's different, maybe, for us in the letters that we would usually write, because in our letters, we, we write these beautiful, long letters, and we introduce ourselves, and we greet the person we're writing to, and then we inquire about how they're doing. We let them know a little bit about what's going on in our lives, and then slowly and casually, we bring up the point that we really want to address. You know, you might think about maybe changing that behavior a little bit. I, I got a bit of an issue with it, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul addresses this letter, and then he immediately kicks the door in. I'm astonished at you. Just throws it out there. That's Greek speak for, what the heck were you thinking? This is actually unique for Paul's letters, because usually he's more polite than this. Usually he has a nice greeting, and he has nice things to say, but he jumps in. What's the deal? Why does he do that? Why is he so intense? Well, the answer is here in the middle of verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
and are turning to a different gospel. He's just flabbergasted that they've left Jesus so soon. They've left the one who called them to Jesus so soon after he preaches to them. And he uses this word, he uses this word deserting. He's like, you guys were this little blip on the radar screen of, radar screen of faith. You hardly crossed it at all, and then you were gone and you deserted. And that's a strong word, isn't it? To desert. It's strong in our culture just as it was strong in the Greek culture. And for us, maybe we can think of the, the terrible reality of people who desert and turn their backs on what they should have been loyal to. Right? They betray the people they ought to have been loyal to. For example, maybe we'd think of the, you can imagine the good German boy living, uh, you know, in the, the beginning of the times leading up to Nazi Germany, and he's being inculcated by uh, Hitler's youth, and he turns and eventually he joins the Nazi party, and he becomes an SS spy on his neighbors, and on his family, and on his own people. This is a betrayal. This is desertion. And Paul expresses his astonishment. They've deserted not just anyone, not just their friends and their neighbors, but the God who called them in the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. But he's quick to point out in verse 7, not that there is another one. It's not as if there's even anything that you've deserted to. You thought you left to go somewhere, but you ended up nowhere. You know, the reality is that the gospel, we need to understand, is not like a buffet. You know, I've been to some really great breakfast buffets. Maybe you've gone to a buffet or two in your life. And there's these, these things you go and I want pancakes today, but I also want an omelet. And maybe I'll get some ham and some awesome French pastries over here. And you're just kind of picking away at all the things you'd like to have. The gospel's not like a buffet. The gospel's more like a three Michelin star, uh, pre-selected, plated, five-course meal. Where if you reject what's on that menu, there isn't another option. I mean, you can go down the road to McDonald's if you want, but, uh, but that's what's left. And it's good to remember also at this point that the word gospel is an important one. What does it mean? Well, it's a word that is used for the announcement of what is very good news. And I think that it's true that, that for you and I, talking about good news or talking about gospel isn't usually the way that we start our conversations with people on the streets in Vancouver. Is that, is that true? Uh, when I'm at the park, you know, socializing with the people there, you know, I'm pushing Aryan on the swing, and then the, the guy next to me is pushing his son on the swing. I, I don't say, so, what gospel are you following today? I don't say that. And if I said that, it would be weird. He, he wouldn't know what I was talking about, probably. But I want to point out, though, that gospel claims or claims of good news are not things that are exclusive to the Bible. They're not exclusive to the Bible, even though the word gospel sounds a little churchy. Sounds a little churchy. From advertising to spirituality to recommendations about what lifestyle you should live, claims of good news are everywhere around us in this city all the time. Hey, buy this car. It's going to lead to some good news in your life. Hey, follow this new uh, life, this new exercise regimen, it's going to have some awesome results. And there's these promises of good news attached to all of those sales pitches. But the thing about those claims to good news is that they don't tend to be modest, right? They don't tend to just say, hey, if you buy this car, it will get you places, right? They say a lot more than that because everyone's trying to show you that the good news that they're offering, the good, the good news that they're offering is the good news, Right? If it's going to lead to the healthy life you've always wanted, 
It's going to lead to a, a rich diversity of friends and a woman who loves you or a man who loves you and all, you know, everything will be fulfilled and happy. But the sad thing is, as the years go by, I challenge you to take a look at this. As the years go by, you can literally watch people move from one path to the next to the next, listening to different claims of gospel good news and never finding the gold at the end of the rainbow. Everyone has a gospel to sell, but here's the question. Can those claims deliver what they promise? Paul's assertion to the Galatians is that they may have turned to a different proclamation of good news, a different gospel, but he says, actually, it's not good news at all. And at the end of verse 7, Paul says, there isn't another gospel. There isn't another one. And besides, the reality is that like a lot of sales pitches in our lives, isn't it true that when you scratch the surface beneath the sales pitch, there's something rotten underneath? Right? You see the guy in the, the greasy mustache and the, the cheap suit selling you the car. You're like, I don't know about this. <laughs> and Paul says this about the people who came to the Galatians too. He says, look at the end of verse 7. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Troubling and distorting. That's what you get under the surface of the sales pitch. These people who came to the Galatians with their message, they, they hadn't benefited the Galatians. They'd only troubled them and they'd only distorted the gospel that they claimed to preach. So how did they do that? What was the mechanism of their distortion? How did that actually happen? Simply this. They, they distorted it by adding to it. The truth of the Bible, the, the claim the Bible makes, is that the power of the message about Jesus and what he has done is powerful and effective only when it is pure. Only when it is undiluted by anything else in addition. Our salvation is by faith alone in Jesus alone. But if we add things to Jesus, if we say, hey, Della, you can be saved, you can know the truth of the gospel, all you have to do is believe in Jesus to be saved and also eat a vegan diet. Right? I mean, if I said that to Fred, he wouldn't go for it in the first place, right? But there's this reality where we add something, and in adding something, we've corrupted it. But maybe it's closer to home if we were to say, you know, this is the gospel. Believe in Jesus, trust in him for your salvation, and never, ever get angry again. We've distorted the gospel because we've added that little bit that to be saved, to be good with God, I must never, ever get angry again. You corrupted the gospel in doing that. And there are some things in our lives, though, that, that are benefited, right, when we add things to them. It's true. You know, you go to your friend's place, and he serves you a meal. He's a single guy, one of the UBC students here, maybe. And you're like, it's a little bland. You know, can you pass me the salt? Can you pass me the hot sauce? And you've improved your meal by adding to it at that point, right? It tastes a lot better. But what about, what about if you were to do the opposite? What if, what if adding to it distorted or destroyed what you had? What if you pulled up and uh, you thought, you know, I'd really like to fill my, my tank up with gas, but I, I'd want to add some sugar to that gasoline. We'll see how that goes. Or you think, you know what, I want to have some dessert right now, and uh, I want some ice cream, and I'm just going to peel open this nice can of greasy smoked oysters and pull it pour over the top of my ice cream. 
I mean, you've got dumpster fodder and that's it. There's nothing else there, right? Or you add a few drops to your drinking water of cyanide, right? It's destructive. It's destructive. Destructive by addition. And it's, you know, we can come up with quirky, funny examples, but there are real-life examples of damaging gospel addition all around us in this world. And one of them, I just wanted to point out, it, it comes from some of the, the Catholic Church's practices uh, throughout the world, but one example comes from the city of Mexico, Mexico City. And in, in, this, in this particular example, you have a laundry list of additional burdens that people feel they have to live up to. They have to follow in order to receive the grace and the love of God through Jesus Christ. So one example is that there's a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and the, and the men and women who come on that pilgrimage, they get down on their knees in Mexico City and clamber across cobblestone pavement for an awful long distance. I don't know how long it is, but it looks quite, quite long. You can watch videos and see pictures of it. And, and their knees are bloodied, and it's painful. And they, they ascend up the stairs and into the cathedral to come before the image to try to earn more grace and more favor from God. That's not the gospel. That's an abhorrent addition to the gospel that empties the gospel of grace of its power of salvation. And it's oppressive. You just see that it's oppressive to these people. They're enslaved. They're desperate for grace from God, but they're not able to get it. And they feel that they have to do all these additional things to somehow seek his favor and his mercy. And they're not going anywhere. It's offensive to Jesus because it takes his incredible sacrifice that he's made, his death and his resurrection, that's a free gift for them. They can live in and feel freed by and have the grace of God through. And it adds to it. It says that sacrifice and that death, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. You need to add. You need to, you need to work. You need to crawl across cobblestones to add to your salvation. And that's maybe one thing we can talk about a long ways away from us today. That's in Mexico. But we do this too, don't we? I think you and I do this all the time. You and I are always tempted to add to the gospel. We have this mentality in our heads that we know that, that to work for something good, you have to work for it. To get something good, we have to earn it. We have to earn it. And we burden ourselves with additions to the gospel. We're just like those pilgrims. And we're, we're burdening ourselves with things that we have to do to earn God's favor. And we feel afraid, maybe, of coming into God's presence. We feel like maybe God loves me in some abstract sense, but he sure must not like me, and I'm scared to come to him. I don't know if I can do that. I don't think I've earned his favor today. It's been a rough day and I've sinned and I know it. And all the while, God's there with open arms saying, come to me. Receive my love and receive my grace through Jesus Christ alone. By faith in him alone. You can't do anything and you ought not to add anything to the gospel. Come to me in faith. You know, there's a really awesome passage in Scripture that we need to read right now. I don't have it on the slides above. But Ephesians 2, verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's what we're talking about here. The gift of God. 
But damaging this gospel of grace and Jesus Christ alone is why Paul gets so intense here. It's why he gets especially intense in verses 8 to 9. Because he doesn't want the Galatians enslaved to some worthless gospel that adds things to faith in Jesus. He wants them to be free to receive God's grace and love by faith alone in Christ Jesus. So look at verses 8 to 9 with me in our second point. And Paul just keeps hammering away here. Our second point is anathema, verses 8 to 9. Paul writes, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I mean, he just unloads here, doesn't he? The intensity just got ratcheted up, I think, several notches. Maybe he was an 8 out of 10. Now he's just full 10 out of 10 intense. You might be wondering, too, why am I using this word anathema? Well, I told you I'd talk about it. Uh, anathema here is really just the Greek, uh, the, the Greek word that's translated, let him be accursed. Let them be anathema. And I use it because I thought, on one hand, it's a funny word to say. I'm pretty sure people could come up with a pretty great tongue twister. Anathema, anathema, you know, I don't know, insert a bunch of other words. Go on. Um, I like to say it anyway. Maybe that's just nerdy and me. Uh, but... It's the Greek word, like I said, translated here for let them be accursed. And you might hear a version of that for sure driving around the streets of Vancouver when you cut somebody off, right? There's a version of let him be accursed that's kind of normal even to our culture. But the thing is, this word anathema is a lot stronger than the average roads, road rage sentiment that you have on the streets of Vancouver. It's, it's much worse. It's much more severe. Because it's a Greek word that's used to express the idea of God's judgment in the Old Testament. So if you read the Old Testament, if you read that first half of the Bible, and you're looking through it, and you come across something that says, let them be devoted to destruction. Or they were devoted to destruction. Or it was devoted to destruction. That's, that's the same, that's the Hebrew word that was translated into anathema in other texts. That's, that's the correspondence there. Paul's talking about anathema. When he's talking about anathema, he's talking about God's judgment. So he's not kidding around. This isn't a joke. This is pretty intense. And it's about, a ten, as, it's about as intense a phrase as Paul could possibly throw out there. Those who preach another gospel, he says, let them be anathema. But why does he say it? Why does he say that? Why is he so intense? What's the reason? Because he cares deeply about the Galatians. And he's worried for them. He's worried for their safety. You know, Paul, he doesn't just come here out of nowhere to Galatia. He's got a long history with these guys. This letter isn't the first interaction he's having with them. I mean, I'd be pretty surprised if the first letter I got from Paul was this letter. But it goes back. There's a long history there. And you can read about that history in Acts 13 to 14 that Paul, uh, I think Fred mentioned that last week. And even part of that history was that uh, Paul had even been nearly stoned to death in order to bring the gospel of grace by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone to the Galatians in the first place. He's worried that all his work for them, though, is going to get flushed down the toilet. He's worried that it's not going to come to anything and they're going to end back in this terrible place of danger. His compassionate rage here, I think, is kind of like the person, that, you know, maybe you, you've seen those rescue videos and you see somebody who falls off a bridge, right? And you see the person dive in and grabs them by the, the jacket and pulls them to shore and saves them. 
But I think Paul's rage is maybe as if that person had saved them and then started toweling off there on the beach. And they're like, hey, wait a second, where'd that guy go? And he looks, and he's wandering up the bridge again. And some devious character has him by the hand, right? And he's like, hey, you know, I don't know if that guy really helped you down there on the beach toweling off. I think what you should do is going to climb to the top of the bridge again and jump back over. And Paul, he's upset. He's worried. He's, he's exasperated. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's angry per se at the Galatians. But he's exasperated and he is full of indignation and rage at those who would preach something so damaging to them. Let people who peddle danger and feed it to you as something beneficial, let them be anathema. Let people who, as Fred said last week, take a cancer medication and counterfeit it and tell you that it's going to work to cure your cancer, let them be anathema. They're hurting they're destroying. And Paul, he writes, it doesn't matter who they are. He wants to be clear. This isn't a Paul versus those guys issue. He says in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven, it's not just those guys. If anybody does it at all, if anybody should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter who it comes from. But it did come from somebody. And maybe we need to take a moment at this point to look at who, who was it? Who brought this message? Who were these guys? And what, what did they say? How did they hoodwink the Galatians? Well, these false teachers, they were Jewish, it's very important, Jewish believers in Jesus. And they felt the need to correct Paul's message by teaching that Gentile converts to Christianity had to also follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Jesus plus the law of Moses. You see that? And actually, this false teaching, it was summarized in the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, there's uh, just a, a brief little summary of what they taught. It says, they taught, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Jesus plus. Why would they teach that? Why would they say Gentiles had to believe in Jesus and be circumcised and by extension, as we know from the rest of the book of Galatians, also follow the whole of Jewish law? Why would they teach that? What was the motivation? Well, you have to see what's going on. You have to imagine the early church's dynamics a little bit with me. You have this picture, right? You see this image, Paul's preaching this message about Jesus and what Jesus has done to save us, but he's not preaching it just to Jews. He's also preaching it to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And these Gentiles, these other people, they're joining the church that has always, up to this point in time, been predominantly Jewish. Jewish. So changes are happening. Things are getting stirred up. The pot is being mixed in a pretty significant way. Paul was taking the gospel good news that God had promised way back in history to Abraham, the first father of all the Jews. And he was now preaching that message to non-Jews. And on one hand... Gentiles being blessed in Jesus along with Jews is exactly what God had promised would happen when he promised the gospel to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, verse 3. God told Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's all the families on earth. That's not just a Jewish family. That's everybody shall be blessed in Abraham as God worked his salvation through his family. But on the other hand, this is a problem for the Jews at this point in time, when Paul was writing and teaching, because they felt a little possessive of their church, right? They, they thought, you know, these new people who are coming in, they don't really know the Jewish customs. They don't really understand 
our culture. They get a lot to be brought up to speed with, and we're a bit concerned about that. And if you're one of these early Jewish Christians, you may have even felt that Paul was actually emphasizing Jesus too much. You might have thought, you know, I mean, I believe in Jesus too, but God said a whole lot of other stuff in the Bible than just talking about Jesus. And you would have had passages of Scripture in your mind, like Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, that say, Cursed be anyone who does not conform, or not confirm, sorry, the words of this law by doing them. And you would have realized, well, that's a passage that seems pretty strong. We ought to obey the law. And, and these Gentiles, I mean, they can't just trust in Jesus. I mean, surely Paul misspoke. He didn't mean that. He meant trust in Jesus and obey the law. These Jewish teachers, they were causing problems in Galatia because they were going around after Paul, falsely correcting his work. They went around teaching faith, trust in Jesus as good as far as it, as it goes, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And they taught that to experience the fullness of all that God offered in salvation, to truly be changed, to truly be transformed by him and live in the fullness of relationship with him, you had to follow his laws, all of them. And just like that story that I mentioned of the Catholic Church in Mexico under the burden of trying to earn God's grace, these guys were put under a burden of trying to earn God's grace by these Jewish Christian teachers. They corrupted the gospel by addition, and they emptied it of its power to save and to free. But here's the problem. Here's something so important that the Jewish teachers, they miss completely. And I think we need to hear this this morning as well. Because the reality is that the law of God in Scripture is a wonderful, wonderful revelation of his good character. But you and I can't become good and righteous by following it or by following any other law at all. We can't even become good and righteous by following the laws that maybe the average person on the streets of Vancouver feels that they have the right to impose upon themselves. You know, if I put a law over myself, I just want to be a selfless person who shows love to other people. You know, the golden command, uh, the golden rule, doing it to others. We can't even leave, live up to those standards. If you look, take an honest look at your heart, you see yourself falling short of even that standard of goodness, let alone the full scope of God's righteous decrees in his Old Testament law. We can't get there by following a law. We can't become good in all the ways that we know we need to by following these laws. We become righteous and good by trusting in Jesus alone. As his character is birthed in us, and we're transformed to love others and to love God as we were created to do. The thing is, you need to be freed from you. And the law can't do that. Only God can do that through his gospel of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is birthed inside of you, starts to live inside of you and transform and change you in the depths of your hearts to be a different person who loves him and who loves others. Paul talks about this in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says it this way. He talks about the gospel and its results. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you want to see change in this world? Do you want to see goodness erupt? Love for your neighbor, love for God to be the norm? To have that happen, Jesus Christ needs to be formed in his people. 
Jesus Christ needs to live within us, one person at a time, as we place our faith and our hope in Jesus alone plus nothing else. That's how we get there. That's what I need. That's what you need. For Jesus to live inside us. For that to happen, we've got to come to him in faith and in trust. Not trying to earn it. Just faith in him. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And adding laws to that equation, even good laws from the Bible, that would only counteract the good gospel of grace that he alone does as we believe and trust in him. Jesus plus nothing is everything. But boy, is that statement a slap in the face to Vancouverites, isn't it? We're not supposed to be exclusive, and we sense that. We feel it. But I think someone needs to give Paul the memo, right? He's out there throwing anathemas left and right like that's candy at a parade. But Christianity, according to Paul, the apostle who was sent by Jesus, who is God, Christianity, according to Paul, is exclusive. It's quite exclusive. And the question for us is, is he right? Was he right to preach it the way that he did? Would we be right to imitate him in our own preaching of it? Well, to answer that question, look at our third point this morning in order to see what he says. Look at the approval that Paul seeks in verse 10. Paul writes, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, Paul makes this exclusive gospel claim not as the authority that gave it in the first place, but as someone who received it from Jesus. Someone who received it from the only God who is good and gave it to him to deliver to others. Look again at the way that he says this. He's now the servant of Jesus. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. His motivation isn't to just throw it out there from himself. His motivation is to serve the God who gave it to him. He's not really interested in preaching a gospel that would be acceptable to Vancouverites or a gospel that would be acceptable to Galatians. And if you read the book of Acts, you see that the gospel, when he preached it, and the time that he preached it, wasn't acceptable to a lot of people. Paul's interest, on the other hand, was in being faithful to the one who revealed the only message of salvation in Jesus to him in the first place. Faithfulness. And he's exclusive about his gospel because Paul's aim is just to follow Jesus as his servant. That's powerful, isn't it? Look at what the text says, verse 10, one more time. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I just have two points here, and we'll close. One, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you need, you need to consider what Paul's claiming here. You know, when I was young, my dad would discipline me, and, uh, and if I was resisting his discipline and his correction in my life, um, sometimes he would talk to me about the way that, that, you know, Brent, I'm doing this because I love you, but also because I'm accountable to God who gave you to me, and whom I am accountable to, to discharge this discipline in a way that's for your benefit and for your good. And even for my young, whatever it was, 10-year-old heart, you know, having a hard conversation about a punishment I had to undergo, it was something that broke through. Because I could see the look in my, my dad's eye, and I could realize, you know what? He's an imperfect guy. 
but he wants to be faithful to God. He wants to do this in a way that is for my good, but ultimately out of faithfulness to God. My dad's authority is derivative. The thing is, Paul's authority here is also derivative. And I think that ought to get our attention. He's saying, it's not just me. I'm a servant of somebody who gave it. And it makes a difference then who Paul is serving. Because if he's making this stuff up, if he's serving himself, what is he? He's a tyrant. If he's serving men rather than God, then why on earth would we trust him? He's just like that greasy car salesman. No offense if you're a car salesman. But if he is seeking to be faithful to the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a servant of Christ, then we must listen to him because he's saying it for the Galatians' good and for ours too. And moreover, if he's right, if his gospel is from God, and if he is a servant of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who's Lord of the universe, if that's true, then his gospel is going to have results that we can see and that we can test. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, my challenge to you is consider what Paul's saying and look around you. If his gospel's true, then that life that I talked about being birthed in new people, showing the love of God that they can't produce inside of them, then it should be here. Then you should see evidences of it. We're not perfect, but there's a God who's at work in our midst. My challenge to you is to consider that. Explore it. Think about what Paul's saying and think and try to discern whether he is a tyrant or crazy or the messenger of God. The second point, final point here, is that you and I, who are followers of Jesus here this morning too, we also need to be confronted by this verse. Let's look at that last half of the verse in verse 10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. We need to let that land on us. You know, I've had these words pasted on my walls in my house more than once. Because like I said in my introduction, I really want to please men. I want to somehow be liked by everybody around me. And it's tempting to soften the hard edges of the gospel and to make it say things that it doesn't say or to not say it at all if my motivation is that. And we need to remember something. This is not Paul's gospel. And it's not mine. And it isn't yours either. It's God's. It's powerful and effective only when faithful, only when pure and uncorrupted. You know, Jesus says in the Bible, he says, no man can serve two masters. That's something that we need to think about right now. The question for us is, whose approval are we seeking? Sometimes I think we try to live our lives with one foot in the boat of pleasing our neighbor and one foot on the dock of being faithful to God. But you need to realize that if you try to do that, you end up not pleasing your neighbor and not pleasing God and falling between the dock and the boat into the water. If you try to soften the edges of the gospel, what do you do? When you're talking to your neighbor, you don't preach to them the message of life that can save them, that can bring them into a relationship with Jesus. So it doesn't help them. And when you try to be faithful or faithful to them in that way by softening the edges, you haven't helped them, and you certainly haven't been faithful to God. No man can serve two masters. The gospel is by faith alone in Jesus alone for salvation for everyone who believes. But we need to proclaim it with faith and with confidence, holding fast to what it says. 
confident that it's not ours. It was given to us by God for the salvation of all who would believe. That's our hope. That's our joy. That all would believe and come to know Jesus and love God and be loved by him through his message of the gospel. Here's the thing. Even though we might feel alone in that sometimes, especially in a place like Vancouver, we're not alone. We're not alone. There's other churches, but we're also part of a 2,000-year-old history of a church that has had a faithful gospel witness in this world and that has overturned practically everything in the West and elsewhere as well as we see the gospel take root and have benefit as churches grow. What happened on that cross in that tomb 2,000 years ago, it was the revolution to overturn all other revolutions. It's powerful. We're part of that. And be encouraged. It's bearing fruit. It has always borne fruit. And be confident that it will continue to bear fruit because it's the word of God. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.